Welcome to the show called Let's Talk Homeschool. I'm Davis, and this is the show where we talk about everything homeschooling, how, what, when, where, and why. We want to affirm, encourage, challenge, and inspire you in this adventure of a lifetime, and we want to celebrate everything you get to experience along the way. This podcast is sponsored by Apologia Educational Ministries. Go to Apologia.com, a great place to explore creation. Today's show is titled, Eight Who Live Like They Were Dying. Jim Elliott. This is the last in the series of eight missionary biographies. And so during their last Christmas together, Jim and Elizabeth were discussing the plans for reaching the Alcas and the possibility of dying in the process. And Jim said, if God wants it that way, darling, I'm ready to die for the salvation of these people. And so Jim lived by this credo, and uh, uh, Brother McGregor and I were talking about this last week or week before last, one of the greatest statements I've ever read. Uh, Jim Elliott lived by this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The following presentation is a production of Apologia Mission, which is the 501c3 nonprofit arm of Apologia Educational Ministries. We hope you'll enjoy this message by Pastor Jerry McCarron. This audio recording is just one in the series entitled Eight Who Live Like They Were Dying. Each one is based on the corresponding biography published by Youth with a Mission. For more information about Apologia Mission, please visit our website at www. ApologiaMission.org. Tonight we're going to be talking about one that is more familiar. We're going to be talking about Jim Elliott. I told you this experience. When we first moved to Middle Tennessee, I had been to India in 1970, been there for about three months, came home with infectious hepatitis, spent 26 days in ICU. And then for the next nine months, I could not hold any of our children, couldn't go back in the pulpit because I was under strict orders. Well, we worked at a little church for a while, then we ended up getting a call to come to Middle Tennessee, and we moved there, and we worked with a church there in Tullahoma. And it was an amazing journey in that church. And a missionary came by on the way to Europe. I had met this man in India, in Italy. And he came by to visit with us on a Sunday night and talked to us about his journey back to Italy. And uh, he said, I have something for you, Jerry. I have you a book. You need to read this book. And being a reader... I thoroughly enjoy reading, and he tossed me this book by Elizabeth Elliot, called Through Gates of Splendor. Put that on the top of your list. A companion volume, Shadow of the Almighty, which is basically uh, Jim Elliot's uh, journal of life. Uh, both of them are fabulous books. And anyhow, I got this book, and I told you, I think it was last Sunday or last Wednesday night, that that was a time that I really struggled with sermons. When you first get out of school, you have a lot of answers, but you don't know what the questions are. And uh, 
No one had taught me about expository preaching, taking a book and working a way through the book or taping a topic. And so I really struggled with sermons. And so, man, it was a, it was a tough deal for me to get ready for Sunday morning. And then uh, I taught a ladies Bible class and I taught Wednesday night and then I taught a singles class on Sunday and I preached on Sunday night. It was really a struggle to get all of that together. But this guy gave me this book through Gates of Splendor, and I started reading it. And that book just sort of got a hold of me because I began to look at my own life and began to try to, you know, a lot of changes you need to make. And uh, it's just one of those books that really gripped you. And I remember that I spent all week long reading that book and weeping and then asking God, Sunday's coming, now what do I say, you know? So tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about Jim Elliott, but before I do, I want you to just listen as I read to you a text from John's Apocalypse. Listen, because this is a text that drove these five families to the Ecuadorian jungles. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. I love that. From every tribe, and every nation, and every language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. Now, as you read the book of Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism there. Apocalyptic literature was a style of literature that the people were familiar with. And you can't understand the book of Revelation if, you don't, if you're not rooted in the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel and Daniel and some of the words of Isaiah. But a lot of symbolism, the idea of white robes are, is that idea of the redeemed. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they, do you remember another time when there were palm branches? You remember that? Somebody was on the way to Jerusalem. Do you remember why he was going there? He was going there to die. Do you remember that? Holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, who are the people who are crying this out? Every tongue, every tribe, and every language. That could not be counted. This is a glimpse of heaven, folks. And that makes me a little bit excited. Now all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will 
they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center before the throne will be their shepherd, and he would lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This was the passage that drove Jim Elliot, along with his four people, his four associates, to go to the Ecuadorian jungle. Let's talk to our Father. Father, we know today that in our world that there are still unreached tribes and languages and people who do not know of Jesus. Some, Father, are embedded in extreme poverty in large cities. Some, Father, are cutting their ways through deep jungles of South America or other parts of the world. And Father, there are still tribes who are still living as in the Stone Age. And so, Father, for them we pray. We pray, Lord, that we will be able to raise up, even from this church, sons and daughters who are willing to go and present unto them the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Father, we long for your courts. We thank you, Father, for the cross. We take our refuge in your word. We draw, Father, upon the strength of your spirit, and we celebrate your hope. In the name of Christ, amen. It was on a Sunday, January the 8th, 1956, that five missionaries, Roger Yoderian, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and Jim Elliott were speared to death in an attempt to reach the Alka Indians from the Waldani tribe in the Ecuadorian jungle. They were called the Alka Indians by the people in outlying areas, and Alka simply meant, meant the savages. Their story is told again and again in the book through Gates of Splendor and through the DVD called Beyond the Gates of Splendor and then, of course, the more recent film, End of the Spear. And some of you asked me to, to maybe show parts of that movie, The End of the Spear, tonight, but I knew you'd rather hear what I had to say, so we didn't do that. You can do that on your own time, Okay. Deep in the Amazon jungle of southeast Ecuador, there lived a primitive tribe that were called the Waldani. They were the Alcas to the outsiders. They were known killers. They lived their lives in ruthless revenge killings. They were known for their savage hostility to all outside their tribe. And until the arrival of the gospel in 1956, of the deaths in that tribe were by homicide. The Alcas killing one another in acts of revenge are being killed when attacking other Indian tribes. And the more I read regarding this tribe, it seemed as though that there was just a lot of paranoia, a lot of the, the spirit world that's going on here. Their population had dwindled to about 500 because of the killings. 
They live by a motto that simply said, said, spear and live or be speared and die. There's no record of anybody prior to the arrival of these five young men of ever coming face to face with the Alcas and living to tell about it. The Alcas were among the ultimate unreached people group. They were acquainted with demons and evil spirits and superstition and witches and witchcraft. And I want to say something about that right now. My wife and I don't celebrate Halloween. This is personal with us. And one of the reasons why is if you ever spend time in a developing country or a third world country where you encounter tribes that believe in witchcraft and in the demonic world, it will make you a believer. It's real to them. And there are missionary stories that will absolutely, I had a dear friend, in fact, he's preaching at a church in Dallas now, two PhDs, brilliant young man. When we lived in South Africa, he was doing some postgraduate work at the University of South Africa. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to make inroads into witchcraft in a local tribe there. So he was able to make contact. Now, you've got to keep in mind that this is a very, very closed system. It's like the Haitian voodoo and Jamaican. I mean, it's a very, very close system. And so he was able to go to one of their witchcraft councils or whatever you want to call it. And he said, McCarran, I'm here to tell you, I'm a very rational, intelligent man. But I begin to see things and begin to witness things by which I could not explain it. And it frightened me. And he said, we got to the point that the witch doctors basically said, we will take you no further. This is far as you can go. And there are more missions, missionary stories along that line than you can ever believe. And so there was the ultimate challenge in missionary work. They were a challenge that Jim Elliott and his team could not resist. Here is one of the prayers that Jim Elliott often prayed. Make me your flame, O God, a flame that will burn bright, so people that I meet will hear of your great love and your beautiful light. It was God's, it was Jim's singular passion to take the gospel to one of the unreached tribes and to take the word of God to a tribe in which they were locked into the stone age and they had, no one had ever taken their language and broken it down and to even be able to read the word of God if they had it. And so tonight, I'm going to approach this a little bit differently than the previous ones. The question that I dealt with as I put this lesson together was, what does it take to face the forces of evil? Throughout Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus and the church at Colossae, there were forces of evil. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about you better put on the whole arm of God, folks. He writes to the Corinthians. He said, folks, you better get a grip. We're at war, and it's not against flesh and blood. It's beyond flesh and blood. It's the demons of darkness. It's the prince of this world, and you better. And folks, that battle's still going on, okay? So what does it take? It takes an incredible spiritual power, 
that must be available to face the powers of darkness and make disciples. I came up with this concept, shared it with Nancy the other day, and, and I think there may be a sermon coming along this line. We've got to understand the whole concept of faith. There is a seen world and there's the unseen world. The seen world is when Paul says, we don't walk by sight. That's what we can see. That's the world in which we live. It's a building. It's, it's as we can see one another. It is a seen world. Faith does not operate here. Faith operates in the unseen world where God is. And until we look upon God and until we understand that he is there and he is available, it's not going to change a whole lot back here. We've got to understand that as believers, we can sort of see the unseen. We know God is there. We know his precious promises. And that empowers us to live our lives here. And this is the thing that really is prominent as I listened, as I read their journals, that they kept depending not upon what they were able to see with the Alka Indians or the savages or what might happen. They lived in a total different context because the world in which we live here the worst thing that you can have to experience in life is to die but the way they looked at it was the worst thing in life is to die without a savior and so they were willing to go and die in this context so they could discover this over here maybe i just confused you okay I don't even any notes. Here's some things I want to suggest to you that how they were able to do it. First of all, there was the power of obedience. I believe that there is a direct correlation between one's level of obedience and one's experience with God. I believe the greater one surrender and the greater one loves God and the greater one uh, obeys God, I think the more we will experience God. Uh, there are several passages, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, and other passages. Jim Elliott was extremely talented. He was intelligent. He was athletic. He was handsome. He had strong leadership qualities. He could have been a success in anything he chose to do. He could have been a corporate executive. He could have been an attorney. He, he could have been a medical doctor. You name it. The man was absolutely brilliant. But he and his wife Elizabeth chose obedience to Christ first and foremost. There was nothing mysterious. There was nothing mystical about his call to missions. It was simply a matter of obedience that he felt, and I do, that God places upon all of us. When he says, folks, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Literally in the Greek text, it simply says, as you are going into the world, preach Christ. And so it is not assigned to a handful of special people. It means, James, wherever you are, wherever you're going, you be light, and you share the message, and you be faithful in your witness and your testimony. That's what he's saying there. And when... Uh, Jim Elliott and his buddies, they read that. He wrote that the command is plain. It cannot be categorized. Uh, 
It cannot be dispensationalized, and that's just a big word, but what he's saying is you can't take the command of Matthew 28 and say, well, that was just for the people of the first century. That doesn't apply to us today. Because that was what was happening back then. A lot of the schools of theology and seminaries, they were saying, well, that was great for the people back there, but it doesn't apply to us today. He said, you can't do that. You cannot rationalize it. And he saw Ecuador as part of the command of God. And so the five young couples heard the call, they obeyed the command, and they moved to the jungles of Ecuador. Jim wrote in his journal, our mission is to teach. Our mission is to baptize. Our mission is to teach them to teach and to baptize. Does that sound familiar? Almost biblical. I'm just kidding, okay? Jim's great fear was in how churches and Christians rationalize the command. How some even compartmentalize the command of previous generations and beyond the current generation. So why did they go? Because they took the command of Jesus literally. And that's why they went. God said, go. Hey, we're his disciple. We've been redeemed. We got to pack it up. And we got to go. One of the guys that was with him was a guy by the name of Nate Saint. Here's what he wrote. This was three weeks before the massacre. December 18th, 1955. As we weigh the future and seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it is not the call of the needy thousands. Rather, it's simply uh, imitating the prophetic word that we should go to every tribe so we can lead them into his presence in the last day. And so that our hearts, that we will feel that it is pleasing to our God, that we should invest and interest ourselves in making an opening unto the Alka prison. They were locked up in darkness. And he says, now, as we have a high old time, they were celebrating Christmas. This was one of the, the last Christmases. As we have a high old time this Christmas, may we who know Christ hear the cry of the damned as they hurtled themselves headlong into the Christless night without ever had a chance. May we be moved with compassion as our Lord was. May we shed tears of repentance for these we have failed to bring out of darkness. Beyond the smiling scenes of Bethlehem, may we see the crushing agony of Golgotha. And may God give us a new vision of his will concerning the lost and our personal responsibility. Do you catch the flavor of that? I mean, man, these guys and these gals are excited about the call. And then Jim Elliott wrote in some of his words, he wrote, his friends and colleague, that the command is plain, going to haul the world and announce the good news. It cannot be rationalized. It stands as a clear command. Uh, we must obey the promise. We must accept the promise. And to me, Ecuador is simply an avenue of obedience to the simple word of Christ. Then he wrote again, 
that there were those who believe certain words of Christ or passages of the New Testament are not the living word of God for us to follow and obey and believe and experience and put into practice today. But he said, folks, that is wrong. That is in error. And then he wrote, it is only when we obey God that we can be quite sure that we really know him. The man who claims to know God but does not obey him is not only a liar, he lives in self-delusion. Chew on that one for a while. In practice, he says, the more a man learns to obey God's word, the more truly and fully does he express his love for God. Obedience is the test of whether we really live in God or not. The life of a man who professes to be living in God must bear the stamp of their owner. And so Jim Elliot had a passion to live a life that would be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. And it is obedience that leads to knowing God. It is an obedience that we express our love to God. And so Jim Elliot and all the rest died because of their obedience to God. And the previously unreached and unreachable Alcas were converted to Christ because of their loyal obedience. Obedience is not just the path of dying for Christ, but it's also the path of disciples who are living for Christ. The second source of the reason they went was the power of sacrifice. In one of the books, there's a section called Expendable for God. During the last war, we were taught to recognize that in order to obtain our objective, we had to be willing to be expendable. This very afternoon, thousands of soldiers are known by their serial number as men who are expendable. We know there is only one answer to our country's demand that we share in the price of freedom. And yet when the Lord Jesus asks us to pay the price for world evangelizing, we often answer without a word, we cannot go. It costs too much. But God himself laid down the law when he built the universe. And he knew when he made it what the price was going to be. God did not hold back his only son, but gave him up freely for us all so we could be free. And so missionaries constantly face expendability. Jesus said there is no man who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's sake, but shall receive an hundredfold now in this age and the world to come eternal life. And so the second thing was not only obedience to the command of God, but a feeling of being expendable. The friends of all of these people, especially in, in the book by Elizabeth Elliot on Jim Elliot, was the people kept saying, why do you want to go down there and waste your life for a bunch of savages? But every one of them saw themselves as being expendable. We're servants of God. This is not life. Living for him is life. And so there was a power of sacrifice. John 12 and verse 24, Jesus makes this statement. He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
Jim knew that to answer God's call was to experience sacrifice. He says, we, we remember that we are following him who carried a cross. And in his ministry to those disciples, his emphasis was upon sacrifice, not of worldly goods so much as upon family ties. And friends, let nothing turn us from the truth that God has determined that we become strong under fire after the pattern of his son. Nothing else will do. Credo and uh, uh, Brother McGregor and I were talking about this last week or week before last. One of the greatest statements I've ever read. Uh, Jim Elliott lived by this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Powerful statement. When they first located the scattered huts and villages from the air, they started making airdrops. Uh, Nate Saint came up with a concept, and I, I'm not into physics, you know, but with centrifugal force, they were able to fly this small plane in a circle and lower this basket. And they, felt, they, they filled this basket up with all kinds of goodies. And they would just lower this basket. Can you imagine these alcas out there running around and suddenly this basket comes out of nowhere with, with machetes and things that they could use and food and stuff like that. And they just started doing that, just trying to make friendly gestures with these, with these guys. And before long, they were responding by putting fruits and other stuff in the basket that they would haul back up. So that was the way they initially began to make uh, contact. And they determined to, to make ground contract, uh, contact as soon as possible. And so they hacked their way into the jungle and constructed a large tree house on the sandy beach of the river. And being creative like most missionaries are, they called this beach Palm Beach. Okay, uh, let me see, where was it? And they left numerous gifts on the beach. The Alcas would slip silently through the forest and they would take these gifts. And it was on a Friday, January the 6th, 1956, that three Alcas, a teenage boy, a teenage girl, and an older woman who came out of the jungle uh, to them and they were very friendly. They named the young boy George. And they took him on an airplane ride. Nate Saint put him in that airplane, took off from that beach. Can you imagine what he must have felt soaring? What concept would he had up there soaring around, you know? Here's this young teenage boy there. And the young girl, and I don't know why they named her this, but they named her Delilah. So you got George and Delilah. And of course, there was this older woman who was along with them. And, and, uh, the young girl, Delilah, George and Delilah left that Friday late in the afternoon, and then the older woman stayed with the missionaries until leaving just before dawn, she slipped out of the camp on a Saturday morning. Now, when the missionaries woke up, the old woman had gone. George and Delilah had left the night before, and what the missionaries did not know is that when George and Delilah returned to their village, without their chaperone, they told the village elders that they had to flee for their lives because the foreigners were trying to kill them. And so the next morning, Sunday, January the 8th, Nate took off in his plane to see if he could spot any of the Alcas. 
And he reported back to the ground by, by radio and also to the base where the wives were listening in that he saw about 10 or 12 Alcas heading toward the missionary's camp on Palm Beach. The missionaries assumed they were coming in peace and goodwill. So they rejoiced and they prepared a meal and they began to think among themselves that, that you know they're coming. But the Alcas were not coming in peace. At 12.30 that afternoon, the missionaries radioed back to their headquarters at Shelmera talking to the wives. Looks like they're going to be here for the early afternoon worship service. Pray for us. This is the day we've prayed for. We'll con contact you at 4.30 this afternoon. But after lunch, the missionaries sang. They prayed and they read scripture. They wrote in their journals. But there was no call that came at 4.30. And it did not come at five, and it did not come in the evening or night or the next morning. Monday, one of the other missionaries flew his plane over the area and spotted Nate's little yellow plane on the beach. It had been dismantled, and it was stripped, but there was no sign of the men. News flashed around the world, five missionaries missing in Alka territory. A search party was organized consisting of several missionaries, a doctor, and some Quechua Indians and 12 Ecuadorian soldiers. Now, keep this in mind, the five missionaries all had guns. Simply as an intimidation tool. But they vowed to each other that they would never use them to shoot the Alka. And here was their reason. They don't have a savior we do. We have a Savior. And so their reasoning was that they were prepared to die, but the Alcas were not. Later, after the grim discovery was made, one of the Alcan women who had become a Christian said, being speared himself, God's one and only son did not spear back. He let himself be killed so the people killing him would one day live well. The great commission to all nations will not be fulfilled without sacrifice. And I think we talked about this, that in one of the lessons back, I talked about, I think one of the missing ingredients of salvation is suffering and sacrifice. Our participation involves sacrifice. It might cost us the lives of our sons and our daughters. I have a granddaughter that wants to go to... Uh, China. I have another granddaughter who wants to go to India. I have another one who wants to go to Africa. I have a grandson that is soon going to be going to Central America. He's studying Portuguese now. And I'll be honest with you, that frightens me a little bit. It frightens me a little bit. But if we're going to get the message to the world, sacrifice is going to have to be made when God sent his son it was not a bloodless sacrifice. There will be suffering. It may cost us our wealth to send out homegrown missionaries from Alpine to a pagan world, but it will cost us something if we're going to be obedient, if we're going to sacrifice. The kingdom of God advances against the dominion of darkness by means of the power of sacrifice. Do you remember when we talked about uh, Amy Carmichael? And we talked about uh, Hudson Taylor? 
Remember when we talked about all the other missionaries? The intensity of their willingness to sacrifice. Because they believe that God told them to go and that the worst thing in life is not to die. The worst thing in life is to die without a Savior and die having never lived. And so they lived the sacrifice. And they were obedient, and that's the reason they went. Then there's the power of forgiveness. There's unbelievable power in forgiveness. Let me read another passage I was just looking at earlier. Every time you read Scripture, keep in mind that there's reason why Paul writes what he writes. And I think I told you, I'm having to go back and restudy the book of Philippians because the book of Philippians, I've always said, and I'm trying to think the word joy or rejoice is used 18 or 19 times. It's sort of a dominant theme in the book of Philippians. And I always thought, that's kind of a happy book, isn't it? Not if you read between the lines. The reason he keeps saying, folks, I want you to rejoice and keep rejoicing. I want you, you've lost your joy is because they had lost their joy. There was something missing. And when Paul writes some things he writes, for example, to the church at Colossae, he keeps repeating some very, very common things. And the reason he repeats them is because there was an absence of them. Okay? The Spirit does not need to waste any words. There is a reason behind it. Here's what he says. Therefore, every time you see a therefore, you need to look at why it's therefore. Okay? It's therefore reason. After you back up to everything before that, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, don't forget you're chosen. He says, you're holy and you are dearly loved. Your picture's in God's scrapbook. He says, because of that, clothe yourselves with compassion. Clothe yourselves with kindness. Clothe yourselves with humility, with gentleness and patience. Then he says, bear with each other. You think there may be a little friction there? Maybe just a little. Something's happening there. Bear with each other. In other words, give each other a break. And then he says, and this is one that's a gripper. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive. You know what the next word is? As. That adverb. Forgive. As. The Lord forgave you. One of the things that was powerful in leaving, leading the Alka to Christ was a level of forgiveness. All they'd ever known was bloodletting and revenge. But you see, when the, when the five missionaries were killed, guess what? Elizabeth Elliot and Nate Saint's sister stayed behind to carry on the work that their husbands had started. And they taught them the beauty of forgiveness. No one had ever taught them that before. In fact, the very ones that had speared the husbands, they caught hold of what it meant to be forgiven. And you don't have to go out and seek revenge. And so there's the power of forgiveness. The ultimate plan was fulfilled. The gospel was brought to the Alcas through the sacrifice and obedience of five men. 
and the wives and some of the children and grandchildren brought to the Alcas personal forgiveness for the killing and the ultimate forgiveness that only God can supply. Jim Elliott's life was cut short, but his flame has never died. His life was not wasted. God used his martyrdom to ignite the fire of God's spirit among men and women of this generation and his generation. His own wife returned to live among the Alcas and brought them God's love. And hundreds and thousands of Jim Elliott's generation became missionaries because of the inspiration and the impact of his sacrifice. You never know the power of your example. One of the things that I grew up with was missionaries coming to our home. And I remember one time a missionary from Africa came, and I was only about 10 and there was something that amazed me. He had a briefcase, or really just a large satchel type of deal. And he set that in the middle of our living room table. And it was made out of snakeskin. I'm 10 years old. Well, how did I go to that place? His name was Reese Bryant. He spent his life in Nigeria. And there's no telling because of his life and his sacrifice to his mission. How many have gone to the field? And that man right back there who spent so much time and his sweet wife in Argentina. And the Jim Elliots who go and say, let me tell you. Let me tell you. He was spiritually powerful in his 29 short years of life. He made a huge impact for the cause of Christ. And most people who live in this world here and who do not, do not understand this one, they would say, what a waste. Most missionary strategists believe winning the Alcas to Christ was futile. It was an impossibility. It was not worth the risk or the effort. But they were delivered from the power of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's Son by the power of obedience, the power of sacrifice, and the power of forgiveness. Revelation 12 and verse 11 reminds us that Satan is overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of martyrs' testimony, and by not loving their lives so much as to shrink from the call of God. And so on January the 8th, 1956, Roger Yodarian, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and Jim Elliott passed through the gates of splendor. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look towards Mission Sunday that we will look in our own hearts and see the level of our obedience and our personal response and willingness to be sacrificial, uh, to, to offer forgiveness, to be obedient. And Father, we praise you for for those from this church that have gone out and from others, Lord, that you have raised up and you have privileged us as a church to sort of hold the ropes for them as they go into some very dangerous places, but they go because they know that they're expendable and they go because you sent your son. And so, Father, we, we celebrate your missionary. And we celebrate, Father, knowing that your only son was a missionary and a preacher. Through Christ we pray. Amen. 
It's time to wrap up this series. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please uh, send us any feedback you have to an, the email address of podcast at apologia.com. This is Let's Talk Homeschool, and we are your hosts. We want to thank our sponsor, Apologia Educational Ministries. Their mission is to help homeschooling families learn, live, and defend the Christian faith. As a homeschooling parent, you probably need a system to plan your lessons. Apologia designed the ultimate homeschool planner just for you. It comes in four beautiful colors and designs so you can pick one that matches your style. It has space to accommodate plans for up to six children. Plus, there are pages for you to journal those moments of grace when God turns an ordinary moment into something extraordinary. We like to call a Deuteronomy 6 moment. These notebooks are literal keepsakes for your homeschool journey. You can learn more about the Ultimate Homeschool Planner by going to Apologia.com and searching for planners. Have a great day, and until next time, we are walking by faith and enjoying the homeschooling adventure of a lifetime.